fundraising has been like stumbling through the dark with like a tiny little flashlight where it's flickering and the battery's about to die. Welcome back to 40 Minute Mentor, the podcast brought to you by JBM, a search firm that places executives and future leaders into high growth startups and scale ups. This week, we're back for another episode of our Early Stage Founders feature series, where we dig into some of the challenges of starting a business and hear firsthand advice from some brilliant entrepreneurs who are already on the journey. Today, I'm joined by the incredible Rachel Tuomasi Corson, the founder and CEO of Afrocentrics. Afrocentrics is a multi-award winning D2C health and wellness startup that offers a range of ethical natural products, including shampoos, conditioners and moisturizers, and many other things, all of which are handmade in the UK using locally sourced, plant-based, naturally derived ingredients. On top of their amazing products, Afrocentrics have also created an incredible community of people, all connected to their hair care journey. Rachel was a fabulous guest to interview. She speaks so openly and candidly about her challenging upbringing, how she turned to entrepreneurship out of necessity to start Afrocentrics, and we hear all about the lessons she's learned along the way. Prepare to be inspired and hear lots of great mentorship. Sit back, relax, and enjoy the next 40 minutes with Rachel Tumasi Corson. Rachel, welcome to the 40 Minute Mentor. It's really lovely to see you. I have heard amazing things about you as an entrepreneur. I know we were introduced by fellow 40 Minute Mentor, Daisy Onabogi. So thank you for taking the time to join us today. How are you? Thanks for having me, James. Yeah, I'm, I'm well overall. Thank you. It's been a very busy week. Good stuff. No, I can imagine. Well, uh, we're going to dive straight into it. We always kick things off with some quick fire questions so we can uh, get to know you a bit more. So please finish these sentences after me. My first job was a receptionist when I was twelve. Wow, that is uh, that is early. <laughs> How did you get that job so early? Crazy story. Yeah, I was answering phones in a little office and uh, fixing computer things and sorting the post in the office, taking things to the post office. And I used to get paid twenty pounds a day. Get on the the bus over to this office. In Northwest London. And it wasn't until I was about 18 that I realized this was weird. <laughs> yeah, 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 a little bit. <laughs> massive paper, you know, paper routes. And I had a receptionist. This year, it was crazy. I mean, 20 pounds, wow, you were rolling in it. <laughs> I love that. They were using child labor, so I guess they had to pay me to keep up. <laughs> yeah, true. <laughs> Brilliant. My biggest mistake I ever made was? I'm going to go with hiring mistakes. So the biggest mistake I've made in hiring is over-indexing on the importance of interviews. And I've now learned the hard way (laughs) that some people are very good at interviewing and not much good at anything else. And other people don't interview well, but can do a great job. So I now take the approach that what matters is references, a task that you set for people, and then the probation. So probation for me is now included within the hiring process. But I, I, I think I would have saved myself a lot of headache and aggro if I didn't mistakenly think I was such a good interviewer that I could, you know, suss out talent. Now I know that actually no one is that good an interviewer. It's a phase you do, but it's not the most important in the hiring process. It is so true. Yeah, actually, you know what? I bet there's hundreds of people going, yes, that was me. I've done. It's absolutely right. And I remember Sophie Edelman, a co-founder of Multiverse, she told me how rigorous her referencing process was. And it was the first time anyone had actually kind of really rammed at home how important that is. So I totally hear you. And I, I know that's a, a common answer. Before I started my business, I wish I knew. That no one has a blueprint. No one knows how to do it. And you're figuring it out as you go along. And that's okay. Yeah, I started the company at 19. I'm now 32. And I feel like this year is the first year that I've been clear that, wait a minute, no one knows what they're doing. Yes, I'm kind of winging it, but we all are. And I think before, because I'm such a researcher, I have a very scientific approach to things. I like to read up before I do anything. I will speak to people who've been there and done that. I'll try and find mentors or advisors. And I've learned that the best advisors who've been the most helpful 
are the ones who are super humble and say, I don't know, no one knows. And they'll still give you advice from their hard one experience. And the worst mentors are the ones that as a young entrepreneur, you'll be drawn to. The ones who are really confident and say, oh, I've done this a dozen times. I know exactly how it works. They don't. If you did something in 1999, that's not going to be relevant in 2022 when you know everyone has smartphones. We have the metaverse. It's a very different space and time. So yeah, that's what I would say. I think that's such good advice. Yeah, so true. Nobody knows it all. Uh, and I, I agree. Some of the best entrepreneurs have been on this podcast who have built unicorns and all that sort of stuff. The ones that really resonate with me are the ones that are still so humble, still curious, still admit that they don't have it all sorted. And, and you need to hear that because we're all in the same boat. I think any founder, whether you're just starting out, you've been in the game for 10 years, like we still have rubbish days and make mistakes. So I think that's a, that's a really good answer. The hardest part of being a founder is finding work-life harmony. I hate the phrase work-life balance because there's no balance. It's nonsense, right? But finding a way to, you know, be at peace with how much you're working, how much you're seeing your family and friends, how much time you have for hobbies. For me, I'm a mum of two, seem to be a mum of four, which is completely wild. And for me, it's about harmony because there's times where my kids will need me and they come first. Everyone knows that. The team know that. My investors know that. My kids come first. My family come first. That's not balanced because if it's balanced, they can't come first. It's, oh, there's a busy work day. No, if they need me, I'm there. But they also know that mummy, mummy works a lot. Mummy works hard. So like my three-year-old has a ball pit in my office <laughs> and he will come in with me and he's used to that. And he'll tell me if he thinks, mommy, you need a break. He'll come over and close my laptop, which is great. This is to take breaks. And funnily enough, it makes me more productive. But I think the hardest thing is getting to the point where you don't have like, you know, the parent guilt of am I working too much or the guilt as, in, as you know, as a founder of, you know, other people are saying they're doing 80 hour work weeks. I'm only doing 70, which is also mad, right? Because I think when you get pulled into the optics of it and how much are you working, when that doesn't really matter, what matters is how much are you achieving. And yes, if you work more, you're likely to achieve more. But I see people waste so much time and like they're working, but you're just tweeting. You're tweeting about how hard you work, hours, you don't miss anything. So you're just on Twitter. And, and I've been in that space myself, right? So this is not judgment. I think one of the hard things is finding that work-life harmony, given that as a founder, you are under so much scrutiny from your investors, from your team, from your customers, from just the general public, because everyone has an opinion. And being able to drown that out and decide, okay, what are my priorities and what does that look like on a day-to-day basis? What does it look like in cases of emergency or cases of high stress or when I'm firefighting? That is so hard. And I hope someone listening has some tips for me because I'm still figuring it out. Rachel, I love that answer. I love that description of it because it is a constant battle. It is so hard. I have said on this podcast before, I constantly feel like I'm letting somebody down, whether it's family, my daughter, my wife, business, friends, not staying fit. Like I'm letting myself down by eating the wrong things and not exercising. And it's so hard. And sometimes you just got to be kind on yourself and, you know, do the best you can. And as you say, be ruthless with your time and prioritization. I think I love the fact your your son closed your laptop. I'm, my daughter's the same. She she properly keeps me in check. She says, Daddy, you're on your phone again. Like, you're supposed to be playing. And I was like, oh, God, this is... The, I'm that guy that I swore I never would be. So it's definitely a balancing act. And I'm sure lots of people listening to can resonate. Finally, can you share something we wouldn't learn from your CV? That could be a failure, a setback, something you've learned a lot from. I said I'm a mum of two, soon to be a mum of four. These were all surprises. These were surprise blessings, my kids. Yeah, my husband needs to get the snip at this stage. And I love them. At the same time, with all of them, I felt a lot of anxiety. I felt like I'm not ready to be a mum. How am I going to do this? And because it wasn't planned, it wasn't something that I went into thinking, you know, I'm ready. But when the babies arrived, it just felt supernatural and it felt super easy. So I try to really support my team with their families. You know, I was, I was the first one, my team, to have a baby. But other team members who have kids or who are trying, I think having <laughs> gone through those surprises myself, and just learning about, you know, my own resilience and just the resilience of humanity and the fact that we're kind of hardwired to parent, right? 
So it's not that it's not hard. It's that we are relational beings at our core. We're made for connection. And that means that I'll be very open and honest about, you know, the things I'm learning as a parent, but also about the fact that it does come to you when you trust your intuition. And I think that applies to so many things as a founder, you know, as an employee, a startup, it can feel that way. Like you're kind of thrust into it and you're like, this is wonderful. This is great. But what on earth? And then you've got (laughs) all these responsibilities suddenly that you didn't have time to consider and you just roll with it. So I actually think my CV would not say this, but I feel like becoming a mum by surprise really helped me in my personal development. And I feel that it helps me to be a good leader. What a great answer. And I thank you. Thank you for your candor as well. And we've got deep early and I love that. I mean, I feel like we've really got a really good sort of insight into you and, and your life, but I feel like it's always good to start at the beginning. So what was your upbringing like? Can you give us a, a little snippet into that and, and also where your entrepreneurialism came from? So I had quite a rough upbringing. I grew up, um, so I'm one of four siblings, five if you include my uh, half-sister. And I grew up with the four. And um, we didn't have a lot of money. My parents, <laughs> very international. So my mum was born in the Middle East. And then she grew up in Switzerland. My dad was born in the UK, but grew up in Canada. And he's half Dutch and half Ghanaian. And my mum's mostly Ghanaian. It just gets confusing. I always said I'm going to marry a Ghanaian to just make things straightforward. Or maybe a Dutch man. And I ended up marrying a Welshman. So go figure. <laughs> but growing up, there was just a lot of instability and chaos. So my parents met and got married and had my brothers in Ghana, where they were both in boarding school. And neither of them had grown up in Ghana. So Ghana was like a new place for them, but kind of home. So I don't think there was a lot of stability there. But they lived with my grandparents, who were great and who were, you know, quite involved in raising me in some ways and really helped to kind of smooth over a lot of the chaos. But there was a political coup in Ghana and there was a guy called Jerry Rawlins who was in charge and he did not like my dad. So my dad was constantly being thrown into prison. The soldiers would follow their car and be shooting at them. And that's when my, so my mum was pregnant with me and the car's getting shot at and she's in the car. So my dad's like, well, I was born in the UK, I've got a British passport. And he was only born in the UK because both of his parents were nurses during the war. His dad's from Ghana, his mum from the Netherlands. They met when they were nurses in the war. So then my dad was able to get, you know, his British citizenship sorted, escape being thrown into prison all the time. But my dad's a bit wild. If you meet him, you'll be like, yeah, he probably kind of deserved it. So anyway, so he moved over. Then my mum followed just before I was born. So on reflection, I look back, I'm like, they were dealing with their own trauma and stuff. And I don't think, you know, therapy was talked about PTSD or any of these things. It was rough. We did not have any connections, any money, any anything. My mum had really severe postnatal depression. So I was kind of like left alone to kind of drag myself up a lot. And my, my happiest memories were in Ghana. So Sometimes my parents would just travel to Ghana and just leave off, <laughs> leave the kids with the grandparents and disappear. I don't know what they were doing. But I love that time playing with my cousins, these these like long, like months and months spent in Ghana. So I kind of feel like I grew up between London and Accra. But in London, I was broke. We were in a council house. I was on free school meals. I was, you know, had my brother's double hand-me-downs as school uniform. And it was just, you know, other kids make you very aware of it when you're poor. So, you know, you're poor. But my grandparents were well off. They worked really hard. They had a nice house in Ghana. So I just much preferred being being in Ghana. Those were the happy memories. So I guess my entrepreneurship, part of it came from just necessity. You know, I'd seen a better life. I'd seen, okay, my, par- my grandparents worked really hard. I'd seen what they built. And I saw the struggle that my parents went through and the impact on me and my siblings. And sometimes we wanted things, so we'd we'd kind of figure out little hacks and little ways to to get to them. I'll tell you a story about that. But I think that came from the time spent in Ghana and seeing just how everyone's kind of entrepreneurial. You almost have to be, right? So you would see like mums with a baby tied on their back, like on the roadside selling sheer butter or selling sweets, and then like they see, oh, you don't have water. So they'll pull out a bottle of water and sell you the water. And they're just really responsive. And when I would get my hair braided, I would be in these salons where, again, there's mums with babies tied to their back. There's other kids running around. 
their family's there and they have to work. So they're getting on with it. So seeing a lot of that, I think maybe it made it an option. And when I was a teenager, my kind of first taste of entrepreneurship was I was in in year seven. So I was in my first year of high school and I noticed people spend a lot of money at the ice cream man. <laughs> and we we didn't get like much lunch money or anything. So my parents just didn't have any. So I spoke to my brother and we're like, oh, sometimes sometimes mom buys stuff from Costco, you know, big family, there are four kids, so she buy stuff in bulk. I didn't we like sneak one of those tubs of sweets onto the car because it's really cheap she won't notice and then we can sell them at school and we were at different schools my brothers were at boys school but we'd sell these sweets and I would sell them like so there was like the school gate and then the ice cream van would park up you know a little bit ahead of it so when I knew people on their way to the ice cream van and I roped in a friend I'd be like you know selling these sweets if the ice cream van sells it for 2p I'll sell it for 1p because I didn't pay for it (laughs) nice Natural born entrepreneur. Yeah, but it was because I needed money. I needed like bus money. I needed lunch. Money. I didn't have any. Often comes from necessity, doesn't it? As you said, I think that's that's really that's so interesting. Yeah, what an interesting story. And it's clearly followed through throughout your whole life. And I think a lot of the founders that have come on this podcast before, they've created businesses from personal problems that they've been trying to solve. And, and I believe the inspiration for Afrocentrics is, is the same. You were struggling with a eczema flare-up and you just spoke to a friend at university. And then before you knew it, you were, you were building a business at a very young age. So can you tell our listeners a bit about the origin story and how I read about you building like a mini science lab in your kitchen or something like that. So tell us more. It sounds so intriguing. So I studied law at university and university was always kind of my get out plan. It was like very chaotic. There was like a lot of violence and abusive stuff going on in my house. So I just didn't want to be there. And I've got an older brother who's about five years older than me. So he started talking about university. He's super smart. When he was like, you know, straight A star student, when he was about 15 started talking about uni all the time and my grandfather was very big on education so I was like oh this fabled land university cool that's where I go that's how I escape the madness that is my you know my household and I didn't actually have a great work ethic I was quite lucky in that I could get good grades and just kind of float by but I learned later in life so when I did my master's I was diagnosed with dyspraxia And a lot of dyspraxic kids, if it's not diagnosed, they're seen as lazy. And it's not laziness. It's more that you kind of get overwhelmed because you don't really know what's going on. And you've got this motor coordination thing. And then you find ways to overcompensate. So I was lucky in that my overcompensation meant I could like bunk off school and like mess about and get like really good grades anyway. So I got into my top choice law school up at the University of Birmingham. And I was really excited, you know, far from London. I didn't want to take the risk that they would not give me accommodation. So I did not apply for a single London uni. I was like, I'm just, I'm out of here. This is my escape plan. And I got there and I hated it because I did not fit in everyone. Like the University of Birmingham is very, I hear it's changed, but when I went there, it was not very multicultural, whereas Birmingham, the city was, so I was shocked. It's very, it's like Russell Group, Red Brick, very elite. My friend who I initially started the business with used to joke that it's just full of Oxbridge rejects. And it was. <laughs> and I remember like I had this friend who was like captain of the polo club and he got invited to the royal wedding and his family had a crest. And we would just have these conversations and be in disbelief. He was in disbelief that I was so poor. And he also had thought that like poor people are stupid, like working class people are not intelligent. And then he's like, but you are intelligent. It was really funny. It was like this raging story. But he was really cool. And I was shocked. I was like, I can't believe you're complaining about your allowance which is more than I get from my three part-time jobs and your parents pay your rent. I was just like, what? But it was really eye-opening because I saw that there's so much more to the world that I don't see. And I eventually got to the place where I was fine with it. But at first I was just super insecure because people were coming up to me and saying, oh, which school did you go to? And I'm like, you're not from London. Why would you know my school? I was confused. And then they just walk away and laugh. And it took me so long to realise, oh, it's like, there's like Harrow, Eton, Manchester. There are schools that are like the set schools that everyone knows, even if you don't go there. And they're, they're trying to like gauge your social class. But I just never felt so labeled as like, you are working class, you are like lower. And I don't even think it was deliberate. It was that in the same way I was coming from this world, where I was like, who are these snobby posh kids? They were coming from a world where everyone around them was like them. Their parents had been micromanaging. So I say all of this 
might seem a bit irrelevant, but the context is that I was desperate to fit in. I already felt other, I felt different. I felt like, especially within law, which is even more bougie, <laughs> everyone had straight, sleek hair. So I did too. Because, and you can see my hair is not straight and sleek, right? So the chemicals you need to take this hair and make it look like a GHD ad, they're quite strong, right? <laughs> I've got eczema. So this was a terrible idea. But my mum had been chemically straightening my hair from about the age of three. As I said, she grew up in Switzerland. She was around white people. She didn't know what to do about her hair. And it wasn't until my friend was perming my hair for me, chemically straightening it. And she just said, why does your scalp look like this? Like, why is your neck all burnt? Like, this isn't normal. But it was normal for me. It was my reality. And also I had had to fit in. There was all this pressure. And we eventually, we started talking about it. We had like a proper conversation, realized that this is not healthy. <laughs> this is not a good way to go. And she started teaching me about natural ingredients she'd been exploring she had some bold patches. And I was like, oh my gosh, me too. But again, it's kind of embarrassing to be 18 years old and you've got bold patches, right? And I didn't know that the bold patches were coming from the chemicals I was putting on my hair. So I had like a big bold patch in my crown. I had like no hair, my hairline there and there. You can see it's even like a bit fine, but there was no hair there. So very long story short, I tried to convince her to start a business and I said, you know, oh, I'll buy it from you. You can just make this. And she said, no, she didn't go to you to start a business. And from my perspective, I was used to doing these little like hustles, mainly with my brother, my brother who was at Loughborough, similar escape plan. And when I went to uni, I'd rocked up with a suitcase full of these like t-shirts we bought on eBay that were like Baby Milo, Billionaire Boys Club, Bathing Ape. And I was selling them for like 40 pounds each. And that, that was how I bought food in the first couple of weeks because I had no money, right? And my student loan took a while to drop. And I was used to just kind of building things. Even though I was studying law, I did sciences at A-level and I loved chemistry. And my chemistry teacher used to give me this like university level work because I was just such a science nerd. So it didn't seem that weird to order like the beakers and petri dishes and pipettes from eBay because I was used to just you order what you want and you do it. And I realized that that sounds weird, but a bit more context. Me and my brother, big gamers, actually both my brothers, we loved computer games, but of course we couldn't afford them. And my dad used to clean cars in the car park of this big like computer business. And he was good friends with the owner. And then he used to do like other jobs for the owner. So one of my brothers went and asked the owner, can we have like your old computer parts? And then we used to order like motherboards from eBay and different like chips and different components. And we used to build our own like gaming PCs. So with that context, right, I know now it's not the normal thing when you're like 14 to 16 to just be building computers, but necessity is the mother of invention, right? Kids need entertainment. And we were bored and we were left alone a lot of the time and we loved computer games. So we just started building computers. So building a lab felt more straightforward. It was like, we have to do Office, put out some beakers and pipettes and petri dishes and you're fine so that was the approach that's where it all began yeah and the first product we made was basically like the precursor of soothe our scalp oil so it was like super super straightforward we did a load of research read cosmetic science journals learn about different essential oils that stimulate blood flow to the scalp and that's what i used to kind of like restore my hairline and get rid of the bulb patches and then we just made we put in like 50 quid each made a bunch, took it to a little market stall that my aunt was doing in Easton. I used to volunteer for her like community projects and people really liked it. And then I built this really basic website with just, this is the stuff I'm researching. And remember, I hated my law degree, so I was not doing my law work. I was like, this was my distraction. And yeah, very long story short, we got these customers from the market stall. And then we have people emailing from different countries because they like the blog. And that was the start of, oh, wow, okay, there's actually, there's something here. People are interested. This is so cool. Such a great story. And you're 19, you know, it's just remarkable, the creativity and the hustle and just the, you know, the entrepreneurial spirit. But I can now totally understand why. I was like, how did you even think about this? It didn't, I wouldn't have called it entrepreneurial at the time, you know. No, it probably, well, no, it was you just solving a problem that existed and you saw it and you went for it. And I love that. I think that's, that's just what, the best entrepreneurs do. I really, obviously, we really want to talk about Afrocentrics and hear about the journey. But before we do that, I just want to, I want to reference that, you know, hair is a personal thing. It's an, 
important cultural thing, particularly in the black community. My, you know, my wife is half Ugandan and my daughter, I guess, is a quarter Ugandan, a quarter Indian. And so I've grown up in many ways seeing how important it is to their family and, and also how hard it can be to manage and getting the right products is so important. They've also seen through family and friends how people think it's okay to touch their hair or comment on it, whether it's the braids or Afro hair. And I think it's kind of, that's often very upsetting for people. And, and But then others don't understand why that's the case. So I just thought it was important while we have you here as a real expert in the field to share your thoughts on that experience, because I'm sure that's happened to you. And just for those that don't understand it, just explain why it's important for that sort of microaggression to stop. Sure. Okay. So to explain this, I'll tell a little story. I did an MSc at UCL and after I graduated, I got offered a job by like the student entrepreneurship department, which was basically uh, three days a week. I help other students set up businesses and the rest of the week I can run my own business. And I was in a really small team. The core team, there were three of us. My two colleagues, they were both much older. So I was like in my early twenties, they were, you know, close to retirement age And we got on really well, right? I always felt like, you know, even though I'm a lot younger, I don't have as much experience. They really like respect my ideas. And because I had started a company, they knew, okay, you started a company as a student, we didn't, so we'll like listen to you. So I thought, well, on a level, we've got a good relationship. I'm building my confidence. It's, you know, my first job after my master's. And there was this one day where my hair was out like this. So I switch up my hairstyle a lot. I think I'd had it in braids and I took it out and my hair was like this. And I just feel a hand in my hair and I turn around and it's one of my colleagues. And remember, she's senior, right? So it's a senior colleague. And I, I just said, I'm really uncomfortable. Can you not touch my hair, please? And she's like, all right, don't make a big deal about it. And I was just up to that. I felt, and it's such a little thing, but I felt devastated for the rest of the day because I felt like a dog, like I was being petted. And not even a dog. I wouldn't just go up to a random dog and start touching it, right? I would like, you check, it's okay. It was out of nowhere. And so I, I was upset like the whole week and not my confidence. And I tried to speak to her about it. And I didn't, I didn't mention the word racism. I did not mention microaggression. I didn't say anything. I just said, and I was confused because I'd spoken to her a lot about black hair and how like you get othered if you've got an Afro and how it's not seen as like professional in the workplace and people can be uncomfortable with it because obviously I ran Afrocentrics. And when I spoke to her about it, she said, oh, Rachel, I think you're just making a really big deal about it. And, you know, it's not just you, like I would touch. It's just because your hair's big. And she named another white colleague and said, oh, I would touch her hair too. But I didn't mention race. That was, you brought it into it. And also you've never touched her hair. You've only touched my hair. I tried to speak to her about it and I just saw it wasn't going anywhere. So I just left it. And remember, I'm, I'm young. I'm like just getting used to having my own natural hair. Afrocentrics is in its infancy. So I just left it, but it made me feel super uncomfortable for the rest of that job until I left. What's really funny is during the kind of Black Lives Matter movement in 2020, I got out of the blue. So this was four years after I graduated. So at least three years after I left the job, I got a message from that colleague saying, do you know what? I read this article about how black women feel when you touch their hair and I've been thinking about it. And you tried to talk to me about this and it's been classed as a microaggression and I didn't see it that way, but you're probably right. It probably was. It's exactly as it's described. I felt like I could just touch you and I didn't feel like I could just touch other people. And it wasn't quite an apology, but at least it was a recognition, which I really respected because I thought, okay, she's read this article. Everyone's talking about microaggression. She's like, oh yeah, I've done that. Rather than saying I've done it, it's not a big deal. She's like, it's not just Rachel. It's not Rachel making a fuss. Black people all over the country are talking about how they get petted. And I don't, I've got white, none of my white friends or white family members have random people come up to them and touch them. The only equivalent I can think of is when you're pregnant. Like now I've got a massive bump. The bump touching is weird. And I get it, like, is weird, isn't it? And I know a lot of the time it's, it might be a little old lady in a supermarket or something. I know, I know Lucinda got that, but it is just a bit weird, isn't it? It's just, it, you, don't, you don't invade people's space. Yeah, that's what it is. It's that someone is invading your space. And then when you assert a boundary, they act like you are the problem. And in no other place would that happen. If I just came over and started stroking your beard and you said, can you not touch my face, please? I don't want you to. I couldn't then claim that you're being difficult. 
But there's this whole thing where black women's bodies are seen as almost like public property. Like we're not allowed to have boundaries. And if we have boundaries, then we're aggressive. In fact, this colleague described me as a Rottweiler once. So yeah, so I would just say, just don't do it. And it's not, it's not you cannot touch a black woman's hair. It's like anything else. If you want to touch something, ask first. But also don't ask and put people in an awkward position. If it's your friend and you think their hair looks really cool and you want to touch it and see the texture, say that and ask if it's okay. And also say, it's. I know it's a weird question. Recognize that you're being weird and not the human that doesn't want to be petted. Don't pretend they're being weird. No, and thank you for sharing your thoughts on it because it's not talked about that often, but I think it's important sometimes to flag these sorts of things. If we get back to Afrocentrics then, so tell us a bit more about what makes the business so unique because I know you, you know, everything's ethically and sustainably produced. You only use natural and organic ingredients. So can you tell us a bit about the evolution of the business and the products and, and like where you are today and, and why you grew the business in that way? Sure. So what makes Afrocentrics different is that we are genuinely a company that puts people and the planet before profit. And it's always been that way. So the reason I registered the business is I entered a competition at my undergrad uni for ethical and sustainable business innovation, won some money, and they said, we'll give you more money if you register the business and take it seriously. But it was still a side hustle. You know, I did other jobs and whatnot. What me and my friend who started it had always pledged was that no matter what ingredient we add, it will never be just for our benefit, like to prolong shelf life or to hook people with an addictive smell. We'll only put in ingredients that are a benefit for the person using it. And because we use them ourselves, you know, and our families use them, it made sense. So with an Afrocentric product, you know, it's safe, you know, it's effective and, you know, it's ethically produced by default. Those things will never change. In terms of our ESG, we've got a whole ESG statement on our website. And it's a work in progress. There's more we want to do. So in the process of applying for fair trade certification, we've got vegan certification. We are looking at Cosmos certification, which is like the new organic standard. And we've just started the process. I say just, it's been a year. We've started the process to become a B Corp. So one of the things that sets us apart is you're getting top quality products. They're safe, they're effective, and they are ethical. And this is in an industry where 78% of products that are targeted at black women contain these horrible toxic ingredients that are linked to things like fibroids, respiratory issues. There was even a paper that came out a few weeks ago that linked parabens in black hair care products specifically to breast cancer growth in black women. I just think that's outrageous. Nothing you use to groom yourself should be making you sick. No, totally. Just huge kudos to you. you I'm drawn towards entrepreneurs that you know, put purpose about profit. And often the profits come because it's needed and popular and actually like a really, you know, this it's just a win-win. So I, I, and I've seen, you know, the business go from strength to strength. You know, you've won lots of awards. You've had an advert on Channel 4. You must be so proud. I think it's also a hard business to run. Like any DTC physical product company is going to have very, very hard times. And we're seeing right now, and you know, with the economic uh, backdrop that we have, it's going to be tough for DTC founders. So what have been your biggest lessons from from being a DTC founder, somebody that's run a business for a long time now? And what advice do you have for any other DTC founders listening to this, possibly going through their first economic downturn? Gosh, so many. <laughs> so... I graduated in a recession, right? So from my undergrad, I finished in 2011 and there were no jobs and it was really rough and it was really bumpy. And then I felt that things were getting better. It was just kind of easier to, you know, to find work, to find money, to sell the products. And even though they were kind of being developed in the background, we saw the impact of the recession on sales. One thing that really helped is being clear on our messaging. So letting people know, look, what we put your health first. We're not about profiting from the insecurities of black women like the rest of the industry we're very much about putting health first in beauty and making that clear so people don't see it as oh it's just a shampoo and this shampoo is expensive but they see it as this is self-care this is me investing in my own health but also helping a company to grow who want to help other people with their health so having a really clear purpose is great and really important you need to remind yourself of it through the hard times. There are many. It's really, really rough right now for D2C founders. This economy is a hot mess, right? Everyone sells it down and 
even if they're not, you're having to work so much harder to get the same cells as you did a year ago or two years ago. So remembering your purpose keeps you resilient and keeps you going. As a leader, as a CEO or as a founder, your job is to motivate your team and help them to do their best work. And being clear on their purpose helps them to have that kind of, you know, the internal intrinsic motivation that uh, Daniel H. Pink talks about in the book Drive, where you need to have purpose, you need to have mastery, and you need to have autonomy to be internally motivated for your job. That purpose part, that comes from leadership, right? So making really clear, this is our mission as a company. This is what you're helping us with. It helps your team. It helps you. It also helps your customers, right? Because they know it's not just a shampoo. They're buying into a vision and they're supporting a vision. So our customers are incredible. They'll buy products. They'll buy extra products to give to their friends. They'll be telling other people about the company. About 70% of our growth is organic. It's word of mouth. And it's because we have these diehard customers they just understand the authenticity of our brand and because they know we don't just talk about it, we actually are about it. And they've seen that. It means that they will tell other people, they'll share that message. And that helps you to ride the waves of the recession, right? It's not that, oh, if you're purpose-driven, you're going to do better and you won't feel it. You will. And not everyone cares about your purpose. And some people will just not buy your stuff because they don't have as much money. But it means that you're going to keep your core customer base of people who believe in what you're doing. And then when the recession bounces back, you know, when when the economy bounces back from recession, you're more likely to have survived it. And my biggest piece of advice would be during a recession, aim for survival. Survival is something to be proud of. So many businesses have shut down and they've worked really hard. This is not the time to be taking risks to grow. Survival is risky, right? It's actually easier to say, I'm just going to liquidate the business and take the cash I have. But pushing through, surviving, thinking, okay, where can we slow down and pause? And where can we actually do that important but not urgent work to prepare us for the next kind of economic leap? Or where can we look at maybe other territories around the world that are not facing a recession right now where there actually is growth so we can expand there? And it's a bit of a risk, but it's not the same as saying, I was just going to double down on marketing when your marketing isn't working because it's not, it's not your creative that's the problem. It's not your targeting. It's not the Facebook pixel. It's that everyone is trying to figure out how to pay their bills, how to fill their car with fuel, how to feed their kids, right? Even people who are quite well off, the cost of living crisis is real and it's hit most of the British population. So this is a time to be proud of yourself if you survive and not to listen to voices that make you feel like, you have to have this perpetual, you know, VC-fueled growth. Sometimes that doesn't work. And in the middle of a recession, you need to be looking around, thinking of the next opportunity and focusing on survival. Rachel, that is unbelievable answer. It's fantastic advice for anyone that is listening. This whole series, this feature series is all about, you know, early stage founders, you know, building incredible businesses, and it's meant to inspire the next generation. And also to kind of remind those that are at the early parts of that journey, you know, to keep going. And that advice is just what a lot of people are going to need to hear because there is a huge amount to to be said for surviving difficult periods and you'll often be stronger for it at the other end. So thank you so much. It was a a nice segue. You referenced it a bit earlier, but you've also built a really strong team and culture over a number of years, but you've also built this incredible community which is, you know, way bigger than the products you you kind of create. There's a whole hair care, specifically black hair care community behind your brand. You've done it so, so well, and it's not easy to do. So can you share just a, a little bit of information about what it took to cultivate that loyal uh, sort of community behind the brand? Any advice for founders that are trying to replicate something similar? And also any mistakes you might have made or you've seen people make in trying to build a community? Yeah, I think community is a big buzzword now. And I remember at first talking about our community and investors are just frowning at me. They're like, why are you telling me this? Like, Why is that relevant? So for me, I was thinking of community in that kind of like grassroots community organization, charity sector kind of way, because I'd worked with different charities and I'd thought about, you know, local communities. If you want to make a change in something, you need to get the actual people who you're trying to make that change for included in it because there's a lot of power in community and in the crowd and there's a lot of wisdom in crowds right 
So <laughs> it's funny seeing it become a trend. And I, I, I welcome it, but I'm skeptical because there are companies that send me emails and they talk about, oh, our community this, our community that. And then what they're sending, I'm like, this is not community. Community is where people, they speak to you, but they speak to each other. And it's about facilitating something that's organic and natural. What you're trying to do is show that you've got fans, so the VCs will give you money. And it's very transparent. And it's annoying because it's like, you probably have a slide on your deck saying that you're monetizing community. And I just feel very used. So community should never be transactional. That doesn't mean that there isn't some give and take. In fact, community requires give and take, right? Gifts have to be circulated for communities to work and to flourish. What I would say really works is authenticity. So being honest. And I think that if you're starting your business because you're trying to solve a problem and you have your audience in mind who you want to solve the problem for, you need their feedback. You need their input to solve that problem well. And that's the core of your community. So when I say be authentic, I mean that when you're communicating with them and you're telling them why you're writing these free blogs, why you're sending out this newsletter, why you're including them in everything you do, you're very honest about it. And you're honest about when things aren't going well. And you're honest about what you need from the community too. So one mistake I used to make is send stuff out and expect them to read my mind and know what support I wanted. Or feel like, oh, maybe they don't really care. Now I'll be very clear. I'll say, okay, we need your support. This is what's going on. You can support us in ways A, B, or C and give different options. So it might be that we're up for an award and we really want to win it. (laughs) And it's the people's choice. So please vote for us. The voting, being honest, the voting will take you about five minutes because you have to click through all the other candidates. So we either need five minutes of your time to vote or you can share it on social media so other people will vote. Or you can really, you know, do us a solid and vote and then also share it on social media. Little things like that. So having clear asks of your community, being authentic and knowing fundamentally what you're giving to your community and why you have them. It should never be as a means to an end because they're people, right? It's about relationships. So I speak to members of my community every day, pretty much. And it's about that give and take, which I'm happy to do because, as I said, I care about care about health. For me, health and well-being are, you know, the fundamental basis of our community. And that's why I'm happy to spend half an hour talking on the phone or messaging on Instagram mm-hmm. with someone about their bulge patches and what they can do about it. Yeah. Oh, well, you've done something and you've created a community which clearly does exist without your direct participation, which I think is so powerful and it's often how some of the, the best brands can grow so quickly and organically and it's uh, something to be very proud of and very difficult you know? i've seen a lot of the uh, vanity community stuff that we see in the startup world which yeah frankly you can see through so we talked community we've done the origin story we've kind of learned a lot about the business and but you wouldn't be where you are without having to raise the money that's just part and parcel sadly of, of startup life and it's really hard and it's especially hard for female founders and even harder for black founders and even harder for black female founders. So, you know, the fact you've raised over $2 million, you know, including from Google's Black Founders Fund is, is, a, is a real testament to your resilience and the business you're building. I'm sure our listeners would be interested to learn, given that this series is, is very much focused around current early stage founders or aspiring early stage founders. What's your experience been in around fundraising and how have you managed to invest the right amount of time on it, you know, the, that piece while not letting the business suffer as a result? And have you got any just tips and tricks or things that have really worked for you that others listening could learn from? Sure. Fundraising has been like stumbling through the dark with like a tiny little flashlight where it's flickering and the battery's about to die. It's really difficult and the goalposts can move a lot. And you do, I've been like laughed out of rooms. I've had people say racist or sexist stuff to me. And I've got a very high threshold for this stuff. Usually I have to be told by other people, you know, that's microaggression. I'm like, no, they're fine. So if I say it's racist and sexist, it's like, it's really bad. There was one time that was really funny where two VCs asked the other partner to leave the meeting because they felt that he was being really rude. And I, I hadn't clocked that he was being rude because I was like, oh, I, I've heard stuff like that 10 times this week. Is that bad? But they thought it was it was quite a big fun, fun too. I'm not going to name them. What I would say is I have written a couple of Medium articles to give tips to other people. 
And I've had feedback from people who've said they used it, that it's worked and they've raised investment. So check those out. In terms of the experience, I'm not going to go into the negative too much. I have an interview on Sifted about the reality of raising money as a Black woman. But I, I think whoever you are listening to this, whether you come from privilege or you don't, whether you're male, female, Black, white, yellow, green, whatever, there are things that are always helpful, right? And recognizing your starting point is also helpful, right? Knowing that, okay, less than 0.003% of investment goes to Black women and it's dropped (laughs) since the pandemic because there's been more, you know, fear, uncertainty and doubt. That's helpful because when you're doubting yourself, you can remember, okay, it's not just me, but you you need a balance of the humility that comes from knowing maybe I've made some mistakes, I should ask for feedback and I should learn. And the confidence that comes from knowing I am building a kick-ass business and it's not fair, you know, talent is equally distributed, but opportunities are not. And it is unfair. And also it's subjective. Not everyone's going to like it. It doesn't mean it's a bad business. You need to balance the two, right? Because you need a lot of confidence to go out there and pitch again and again, and you get no's and you go back with a smile and you go back upbeat and with energy. And even if you don't, if you have some pictures that you fluff because you're stressed or you're just upset, someone was really rude to you. I have cried after pictures and I'm not a crier, but sometimes people are just so rude. There was one time I was doing a pitch while I was driving, do not recommend. And I had to pull over the car because I'm like, this man is like just assassination. Like he was just so incredibly rude and had just assumed I was really stupid asking all these dumb questions. And I was naively answering the questions and saying, oh, you know, so to give a bit of context, this one investor had said to me, so you planning to build a factory then? And I just thought it was a genuine question. I've been, I thought it was a bit of a silly question, but not silly as in he's silly, but in that he doesn't know about the industry. So I just explained with respect that it would be a lot more expensive to build a factory than we could deal with because what, we were only raising you know, like a million. And if we built a factory, we would spend all the money and then not have, we wouldn't be able to operate the factory. And then he snaps at me in the middle of the explanation and says, I'm not an idiot. I know how much it costs to build a factory. Like, so why have you asked me? Am I the idiot? And if I'm an idiot, why are you taking a meeting with someone you think is an idiot? I think there's so many power games at play. There's a lot of ego in VC you have to deal with and even with angel investors. But there are also some incredible funds. There's also some really driven people who care and whose hearts are in the right place. So this brings me to the tips. What I would say is have your materials solid, know your stuff inside out, do your research, make sure you've got a good pitch deck with a good outline, you've sent it to people, you've sense checked it. The next thing is practice your pitch again and again. Make sure you've got your elevator pitch ready. Make sure you've got your half hour pitch with Q&A ready. Just make sure you practice. Take every opportunity you can. And engage in self-care. I'm just going to leave it at three. And when I say self-care, I mean every aspect. Think about, I like the acronym SPICES. So you think about the spiritual, the physical, the intellectual, the creative, the emotional, and the social. So this is everything from if you need therapy, have a therapist. I have a lot of therapy. If you need to talk to your friends and hang out with them and just vent about stuff, do that. If you need a mentor to bounce things off of, if you need to be reading books, if you need to go and like do some creative writing or play the guitar or, you know, go for a cycle or go for a run, make sure you're looking after yourself and all the different aspects, you know, mind, body and spirit, because ultimately... If I had not been able to just stop when people were moving mad and just go for a walk in a park and pray and clear my mind, like give all the stress to God, I probably would have lost my mind. People were just so rude and terrible. But I don't know if I would have been able to persevere to make it to the target. So with fundraising, it's a marathon, not a sprint. So follow those tips. I'm going to add a fourth. Track your process somewhere. I use a Trello board. You can use a spreadsheet. Just make sure you're not trying to keep it all in your head because you will mix up investors because you'll speak to so many of them. And that's a big no-no. Brilliant tips, Rachel, honestly. Super helpful. It makes me very sad to hear some of the stories you told. It's also sadly not surprising, which is even worse. I really do hope things are changed. There are a lot of good investors out there with their hearts in the right place. 
but there are sadly still a lot that are you know it's just a, as you said like it's an ego game a power trip and you know i'm hoping the next generation you know will kick those guys to the curb not necessarily all guys but probably the majority are <laughs> so uh, yeah thank you so much for that we're sadly at the end Rachel. we're going to ask our final quick fire questions but it's really been a, an absolute joy to chat to you in one sentence what does the future hold for afrocentrics making safe effective ethical hair care available to everyone lots of expansion yeah that was that's exciting no uh well we'll we'll have to get you back on to chat all about that at the end of your career what would you like to be remembered for being a good mother and leader so important and if you could be mentored by anyone dead or alive who would it be and why Oh, okay. So I've just discovered my new dream mentor who I've, I've ordered her book. So the founder of Spanx, purely because she's a mum of four. <laughs> and that's been terrifying me, that prospect. Like I'm super excited, but really worried. She's built this incredible business and done it with like minimal funding and on her own terms and put people first. And she seems to really care about her team and her people. I, I From the outside, it looks like they genuinely come first. Yes, such a good one. And I followed her on uh, LinkedIn. She would be an amazing guest as well. So I'm putting out into the universe if anyone knows her. (laughs) Hit me up. I would love to get her on. Thank you, Rachel. And last but not least, what final piece of career or life advice would you like to leave our listeners with? I would say seek to serve others and look after yourself. I think if in your career you're looking after yourself, you're clear on what you want, why you're going after it. And, you know, you're, you're serving others, you're genuinely helping others, and you've got that healthy kind of give and take going, I think you'll achieve whatever you set out to achieve. I love that mantra. I've loved this chat, Rachel. Thank you so much. You are building something that is doing a lot of good for the world. And I really appreciate your honesty and candor and good humor. You know, it's been a really fun conversation. So from everyone at 40 Minute Mentor and JBM, we wish you the very best for the year ahead, particularly with the, the two little ones that will be joining your your brood. And uh, I really hope we can meet in person at some point. And uh, yeah, thank you so much. Thanks, James. It's been great chatting with you. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you so much. Rachel was introduced to me by fellow 40 Minute Mentor guest, Daisy Onabogi, who spoke so highly of her. And after this chat, I can totally see why. Rachel's openness and honesty was so refreshing. Afrocentrics has a really powerful genesis story. And I love how Rachel is choosing people and planet before profit. I really appreciated all the fantastic advice that Rachel shared with us in this episode. I'm sure many of you out there that are building startups would have really appreciated all that she said, particularly what she said about the importance of building a community for the community's sake and her brilliant approach to self-care, something that can easily get overlooked when you're trying to build a startup. These are just a couple of my favorite parts of this episode, but I'd love to know your personal takeaways from listening to Rachel. So please leave us a review with your best bits or any thoughts you have, or simply drop us an email to info at jbmc.co.uk. I really look forward to hearing from you and I can't wait to see you again for our feature series finale. Before you go, don't forget to hit the subscribe button so you're the first to hear about next week's episode. See you then.